0: I'm your host, Lacey Ramsey. And I'm your host, Alex Brennan. We are a podcast for the strange and unusual. Every other Friday, we release an episode where one of your hosts teaches the other about a topic or event that we find to be strange or unusual. On Monday, before the episode is released, we post our custom-themed cocktail recipe so you have time to get the ingredients and drink along with us. So sit back and relax. It's time for Crackpot Cocktail Hour.
1: earthquake of magnitude 7.9 hitting Japan. The meteorological issue, meteorological agency issued a tsunami warning that could be as high as 6 meters along Japan's Pacific coast. People near the coast should evacuate to immediately to higher ground. We're covering uh, the situation here in Japan. According to the uh, nuclear power security agency, five nuclear power plants in northeastern Japan have been shut down once again we're feeling the earthquake here in the studio aftershocks from the seven point nine earthquake in downtown these are live shots of the studio right now you can see that the quake the aftershocks are quite big we're feeling quite a strong earthquake watch out watch out you want to stay away you're seeing live coverage of people now out in the streets we're seeing more people out on the streets evacuating from their buildings This is Kamaishi City in Iwate Prefecture, northern Japan. We are looking at Kamaishi Port and it looks like some cars are have been plunged into the water, maybe caused by a tsunami that has hit Japan. The warnings say tsunami may be as high as six meters in some areas, and as you can see in Kamaishi city, and Iwate prefecture, some of the tsunami has already engulfed cars and it looks like some boats and some buildings, as, as, as we can so far see from these live footage, Kamaishi city in Iwate prefecture located in uh, northern Japan. You can see the tsunami waters flooding onto the streets. Live footage, Kamachi City and Iwate Prefecture. We're getting some sound from there right now. And in Tokyo, several fires have broken out. The fire department says fires have been reported in several places, including Ariake in central Tokyo. And this is a look, once again, at Kamaishi City in Iwate Prefecture. And it looks like the tsunami has been engulfing engulfing the port. You're seeing live footage of a tsunami engulfing the port area. What the situation looks like in Odaiba, Tokyo.
0: Several fires have been bro- broken
1: out. The fire department says fires have been reported in several places, including Ariyaki in central Tokyo. The helicopter, uh, reported in the helicopter says that he is also visually seeing some smoke and fire coming out in the prefecture north of Tokyo and Chiba.
2: Tonight, nuclear officials there are warning of a possible nuclear reactor meltdown. They have been watching three facilities near the epicenter with concern all day, and at one of them, fuel rods are now exposed. And if they stay that way, they could release radioactivity and a disaster of unknown proportions. And Japanese media has just reported that authorities there have found two to three hundred bodies on a beach in Sendai, the city near the epicenter of today's massive 8.9 magnitude quake. Entire neighborhoods are underwater and the world watches as two nuclear reactors remain dangerously unstable. Two nuclear reactors remain dangerously
3: unstable. Hi <laughs> Hello. <laughs> sorry you're recording. <laughs>
0: oh wait, buttholes. Buttholes. <laughs> um so uh the reason I'm late today is I had a little bit of a panic attack.
2: I'm sorry, I had I had a crying morning, so I'm fucking I'm here
0: with you. Well, so I, I wake up and like I haven't had my coffee and I'm hungry. And I go downstairs and, like, I'm like, Keith, remember, I'm recording at noon. So, like, I need you to be quiet. And he was like, But, but, I don't wanna. And I was like, But we talked about this. We've been here. And he was like, But what if, like, I'm really quiet when I game? I'm like, You start quiet and then you get really excited and then you get really loud. And it's like the opposite. If you could control it, then it'd be fine, but you can't. Yeah, and so, like, I'm almost crying in the kitchen, because I'm like, I just want my food and my coffee, and for you to be quiet. So I go upstairs to, like, get everything else ready for the podcast, and I have all the microphone stuff put together, because I put it away in, like, an organized space last time, so I wouldn't lose anything. But then I can't find, like, the USB that plugs into the computer. Shit. So then I'm like scrambling around the house i enlist heath for like tearing shit apart and i'm just like i'm so sorry i'm just i just i need to find this i can't find this i can't record and then i'll have to like delay recording so i can get another one and i was just about to call you to say i need to order another one on amazon because i'm a dumbass i left it on the end of the cable so i wouldn't lose it (laughs) <laughs> well, I'm glad you found it
2: I love when they <laughs> do shit like that I'm like oh I left a thing so, so I would remember where it is and then nope
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so Heath was there like when I found it and like I'm looking at it like son of a fucking bitch <laughs> and I'm just like just remember I love you so much please don't leave me <laughs>
2: I lost like a um, a plug-in that you put like a USB into and it plugs into the wall like a charge cur- cord converter. I lost it. I have no idea. And I was like, I know I have this. I know what it looks like. It came with my vape pen. I've been using it for something else. I don't know where it went. And I lost it for like weeks. And I was like, Lee, do- have you seen this? And Lee tried to convince me it didn't exist, which is great, super useful. <laughs> Lacey, you're just going mad. (laughs) Thanks for gaslighting me. Um, And then I went to go take a picture of uh, one of the cocktails and it was clipped onto the end of my photography light. Because I didn't want to <laughs> not have a plug for that. It was just there for weeks. <laughs> but you found it! Yeah, yeah, I'm glad that I did. Um, I Also, I'm not drinking the cocktail this morning early afternoon, but I have a picture to send to you so you can at least see it and be like, what is that? So... I
0: know you told me that it looks creepy, which, as you know, got me very excited. <laughs> yeah. I tried to keep it kind of thematic. <clears throat> So what would we be drinking this week if we had a cocktail in front of us? All right, let me send you the picture and then you can go, what the hell is that? And then I'll tell you.
2: (laughs) Um, I've got like pictures that I'll post on, you know, like I'll send to you for the Instagram with like the recipe, but I just took a really cool shot of like the cocktail itself. So I'm texting that to you.
0: Ooh, message loading. Ooh, (laughs) ooh, ooh. What is happening here? Oh, I like the color play. I like, I like the body of it. Oh, what have you done, Lacey? Okay.
2: <laughs> so, um, the process of this drink, it is called the Fukushima g and and t is usually a gin and tonic. This one is spelled G and T E A, like tea. Oh. Um, so. <laughs> don't, definitely don't spill this tea. Uh, I've been getting into like gin and tonic um lately. I've got friends who drink gin and it I, I like the floral botanical taste. So I've been kind of into that and I was looking for something that looked kind of Japanese. And so in the picture um, that we'll post on Instagram, I used Hanami gin, which has cherry blossoms on uh, the bottle of it. It's like a really pretty kind of decorative it's out of Holland so it's not Japanese but they've got <laughs> cherry blossoms and it's called Hanami uh, so I included that gin as a way to kind of do a nod toward I know our story's coming out of Japan um, I also think like green tea is another like Japanese staple so I combined that gin with the cherry blossoms and green tea and also tonic so it's like a gin and tonic plus matcha and what I decided to do instead of um, I try to get it to glow and it doesn't glow with all the debris in there. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I wanted to make like a gin and tonic and then the ice cubes are actually frozen matcha green tea.
0: Oh, okay. I was wondering what that was at the top.
2: Yeah, so this drink like requires a little bit of preparation. Uh, you have to get like make a really bad like strong batch of matcha and freeze it in an ice cube tray like the night before because I didn't want to dilute this at all. I wanted it all to like all the flavors to mix together really well and not feel like it was melting down. So you do that. You fill the glass with uh, the frozen matcha cubes. You pour in a shot of gin, three to four shots of tonic a squeeze of lemon, and a small dash of sugar. The sugar just kind of helps the, like, matcha taste not be, like, it's earthy, but it helps it, like, kind of sweeten it up a little bit. I think it's kind of necessary. Um, Yeah.
0: So you're not drinking dirt? Yeah. Yeah. I know not everyone really
2: likes, like, I'm not a huge matcha fan either. Like, if it's, if I feel like I'm just, like, drinking grass or, like, a bamboo, it feels really gross. So sweetening it, adding some lemon, some gin and tonic actually, like, made me enjoy it a lot more. So as the ice cubes melt, then the green tea taste becomes stronger and you see these little particles of, like, matcha floating around in the drink. I served it to Lee when I gave him one with, like, a stir spoon. So you can kind of stir it up every now and then and, like, get more of the matcha flavor in it. So it's also kind of a similar concept to the Demon Drop, which we had for our last cocktail, where as something as the ice melts and infuses the drink with more flavor, and I kind of was trying to create a metaphor around, like, nuclear radiation and how like being around it it like leaches into you and like pollutes you and so i think that's like a visible effect with this fukushima gnt
0: yeah actually as we get into the story you'll see why uh this drink the way it, it looks and the way it reacts is actually very appropriate but <laughs> that's exciting we'll get to that later um so believe it or not normally i create absolutely everything in post uh so i create the intros i do all the like mixing and everything because i am out of work because of covid i've already put together the intro for this week oh wow so uh the intro really uh you'll hear it when it's being played it's um I got the sources from CNN's live broadcasting and from ABC News, and it actually, it has a very good way of actually tracking the 2011 tsunami in Japan. So the intro, which you will have heard by now, since you're listening to the body of the podcast,
2: (laughs) I'm the only one who hasn't heard it at this point.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it really gives you a play-by-play of what really happened uh, with the tsunami. Because what we're focusing on this week is the aftermath of the tsunami and the Fukushima plant meltdown. So I thought meltdown. it would actually <laughs> meltdown. <laughs> <All right. laughs> what I had this morning. Um, anyway, uh, so I instead of uh, going through all like the big details, the play-by-play of the earthquake itself that i would just start off with some facts about the earthquake before we get into like the progression of what was happening at the plant otherwise this would be like a two hour long episode
2: (laughs) okay i trust you we've gotten a lot better sense of time since we've started doing this
0: all right actually if you want i can send you uh the intro really quick if you want to listen to it so you know what our listeners have uh heard by now yeah i'd love that my god yeah what
2: year was this 2011. I feel like I just was um, probably very self-absorbed during that time and <laughs> just not paying at all attention to what was going on. Wait, let's see. I'd mo- We just moved to Seattle in December 2010. Yeah. I had, like, a whole grad school thing going on. I guess, I'm like, I
0: don't remember this happening at all. So, actually, I remember this happening very vividly. So, um, the weekend this happened was Emerald City Comic Con. Because, <laughs> of course, it was. And uh, there... it. It actually it just closed. No, hiccups, why? Go home, Alex. You're drunk. What? <laughs> what, what podcast is this? No, I got a point. Alright, hold on, let me let me get my shit together. Hold on. <laughs> Damn it! How you doing? I live uh okay so when the uh when the tsunami happened it's actually just closed a few months ago but there was a mcdonald's in downtown seattle that was just kind of like its own little island and it was a really weird mcdonald's because it was two stories and it had a fish tank in the middle of it and like these giant tvs i don't know where was this This was in downtown Seattle, like, uh, off of Virginia. Okay. And it it was just a weird-ass McDonald's because, like, other than, like, the giant TVs and the fish tank, it looked like a really shitty McDonald's. (laughs) (laughs) So Heath and I decided to stop at this McDonald's on our way to Emerald City Comic Con, and the TVs were always on CNN because this was a very politically aware, apparently, (laughs) McDonald's. And we watched as the reports were coming out, so we watched, like, a few waves of, like, tsunamis, like, taking over crops. I don't know if it was live or if it was, like, a few hours old or something at that point, but... I remember watching it, like, within, like, the first hours of it happening because I just happened to be at this McDonald's and being like, holy fuck, what's going on? Wow.
2: Yeah, that's a pretty uh, specific memory of that.
0: I have another specific memory of this McDonald's, but we can talk about that at another time. But apparently this McDonald's and I were meant to be together during giant political events. Oh, no. (laughs) And now it's closed.
2: (laughs) I hope the fish are okay.
0: Maybe the curse has been broken. I don't know what happened to the fish. (laughs) Alright, so now that you've listened to the intro, the same intro that all of our listeners have listened to, it really gives you a play-by-play rundown of what was happening as the earthquake happened and the tsunami hit leading up to what was happening at Fukushima. I like
2: the way you put that together and splicing in like the like the real-time footage of people like reacting to it. It like gave me a visceral sense of like the fear and horror and like kind of made me imagine like being there for something like that and like how you would even begin to try to process that experience as you're like witnessing it and being a part of it,
0: yeah. yeah. i'm I'm glad you liked it because that's uh, exactly why I did it that way because I feel like so many times when you're like you're listening to the news, it's like, this thing mm-hmm. happened somewhere else and you, you're already separating yourself from it but when you actually have that like what was happening in the moment while all that was happening. Yeah it kind of takes you there. Exactly.
2: Well and I think for me an additional reason um, this is this hits home more than it used to is like I'm from you know landlock, Texas not even nowhere near the coast like no amount of tsunami is ever going to be a threat but now we live in Seattle and mm-hmm. that's you know,
0: a uh, distinct possibility. I fear what I would do uh, before I go into everything that was happening at Fukushima is I would give you a rundown of some information, some facts regarding the tsunami. Okay, yeah. Okay, so the tsunami struck or the earthquake occurred on March eleventh, two thousand eleven, at two forty six Japanese time. It happened right off the coast. It was only nine miles deep. So was this sorry, was this two forty six like Early morning or afternoon? Afternoon, so 2.46 p.m. Okay, cool. It is estimated that 4.4 million people in northeast Japan were without electricity and 1.5 million were without running water after the tsunami. Whoa, that's
2: a lot of infrastructure down.
0: Yeah, it also took four years for radioactive material to reach British Columbia.
3: Whoa. Yeah,
0: yeah. And that's just uh, through tidal currents. So that's how long it took to cross the Pacific. Wow. 15,894 people were dead, with 2,500 plus missing. And that was according to live science as of 2017. Whoa. Yeah. Infrasound caused by the earthquake's rumbling was actually heard from satellites in orbit. Shit. Like, hear that from space yeah yeah actually an entire part of the arctic broke off because of the earthquake it's hard it's really
2: like hard to imagine like literally like the earth shaking that much
0: yeah yeah uh japan's main island of honshu shifted by eight feet which is 2.4 meters it shifted eastward Thousands of chemicals and greenhouse gas emissions were released into the atmosphere when buildings across Japan were destroyed. Interesting. Approximately 5,000 aftershocks were reported. The largest was a 7.9 on the Richter scale. The initial earthquake was actually a 9 on the Richter scale.
2: Whoa, okay, so in the intro when he mentions the
0: 7.9, that's the aftershock. Yeah
2: shit a nine a 10 is like able to be felt all over the earth right
0: like the nine was felt all over the earth god well i guess yeah antarctica cracked off also only 58 percent of people evacuated when tsunami warnings went out and the other what 40 fucking two
2: percent were just like guess i'll die or i have nowhere to go or i don't know how to leave
0: or i can't leave Well, the thing to know about Japan is that it is a tsunami-prone area. They've historically had several tsunamis and earthquakes. And so, kind of like you grew up in Texas, you talked about how you would get tornado warnings. And And after It was just like, fine, yeah. Yeah, it was just like, eh, maybe, maybe not. So it it was kind of that mentality, just instead of tornado, substituted for tsunami. So Mm. a lot of people had heard tsunami warnings in the past. Uh, and then either the tsunami was very small and didn't have the same impact that this one had, or it just didn't happen at all, or the right. damage was minimal. So pe- a lot of people were like, oh,
2: well, you know, they say that all the time, Like, there's gonna be a tsunami, and like, it's not worth it to like uproot everything if it's not gonna be a big deal.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's like, why should I get all worked up for what could be nothing? The boy who cried tsunami. Yeah. <laughs> Uh so also 120,000 plus buildings were destroyed. 120,000? Yep. 278,000 plus were half destroyed, honestly same. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Okay. And 726,000 buildings were at least partially destroyed. That is just baffling to me. As of February 2017, 150,000 evacuees had lost homes. So that was just the number that they had at that point. And approximately 50,000 of those were still in temporary housing. God, and that's 2017. So that's uh, six years after the fact. That was only three years ago. God, okay. The World Bank estimated that at the end of everything, the damages caused by the tsunami could be up to $235 billion. Still not as much as we gave Wall Street, but I'm going to shut up about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so even though I gave you the report from Life Science in 2017, some reports estimated the death toll as high as 20,000. More than half the dead were 65 and older.
2: Oh, yeah, because I bet people couldn't, like, you have less mobility and less options
0: probably.
3: Yeah.
0: Oh. Though initially uh, 28,500 people were thought to be dead or missing by the end of 2011 that total was was reduced to 19,300 because a lot of those people were found to be alive or located. That's good, at least. But my God, that's so much. Yeah, I could have put so many more facts in here about what happened with this earthquake just because there's so much information out there. But for the sake of uh, condensing this podcast and for what we uh, are going to be talking about today, I could not put it all in here.
2: That's fair. And I think it's good to, like, establish the relevant context so that we can understand what it is. But I think, like, too much information and, like, my brain will just, like, stop processing it, you know, and just be like, this is just terrible on a scale I will not be able to fathom. So I think you made the right call.
0: So we're going to go into what happened at Fukushima. But before we do that, there are a few things that we need to understand. Number one, we need to understand how a nuclear reactor works. And number two, we need to understand how this tsunami was caused. Now, we will have an old friend that we met last episode, Mr. Radiation, returning to tell us all about the power plant, but I have a different friend joining us today to explain to us tectonic activity and how earthquakes happen. Oh shit, I'm excited to meet this new friend.
3: Well, my name here is
0: Colonel Crustard. (laughs) Colonel
2: Crustard. It's so nice to meet you. I'm lazy. Yeah, well,
3: I have a lot of things to tell. Now, I'm going to be a crusty old man, but I want to tell you all about tectonic plates and activities. I want to hear all about it, Colonel Crustard. As you know, the entire planet is made of a bunch of these plates that move around like puzzle pieces across the Earth's mantle, colliding and moving around and doing whatever they darn well please.
2: That's my understanding, yes, Colonel Cruster.
3: But what you don't understand is that there are different types of earthquakes. You see, some tectonic plates run right next to each other grinding up on one another whenever they hit a bump they cause an earthquake this is actually most common in california you may call it the san andreas fault i also call it a crappy movie with the rock (laughs) i think you're not alone in that opinion colonel Cruster. In other types, you may have some where one crust is moving over the other crust, and as it's going down and the other one's coming up, you might hit a bump in the road, and those are more common than you think. Okay, so
2: when one is going, like a plate is going underneath another plate? Yeah,
3: so one, as they try to like slide in to take over their territory, it forces the other ones underneath. The final kind is there may be a problem with the fault where they may be standing next to each other and you'll have a horizontal slit along it. And then one fault is just going to, with all that pressure, pushing against each other, one's going to pop up and the other one's going to pop down.
2: All right. Okay, so let me get this straight. Sometimes they're rubbing up next against each other. Sometimes one slides under the other, and sometimes the pressure means one goes up really high, and the other one goes down really low.
3: Exactly. And this last one is exactly what happened in Japan. All right. As we know, there have been a number of earthquakes that have happened in the waters ever since 2011, but... These have not created a tsunami like what happened in 2011 that struck Japan. And do you want to know why? Yeah, I do, for sure. So, most earthquakes happen way, way, way deep down inside the Earth. So, by the time they actually come up to the surface, they've already started to dissipate and echo throughout the mantle. However, if they're closer to the surface, they're going to have more of an impact on the water. So
2: it's, it's about where the force is distributed. If it's deeper, then it's not going to bother what's closer to the surface, which is the water. And if it's closer to the surface, then the water is going to be a lot more disturbed
3: by that. Exactly, because there's not as much stuff to break up all that energy. So one of the things that you need to know about this particular earthquake is this 9.0 only happened 19 miles deep. And while that might sound real deep to you, that is not real deep when it comes to earthquakes. (laughs) That's good information to have, Colonel Crustard. So because of this, it was able to create a larger tsunami than they expected. And now to explain what happened, I will pass it along to my friend, Mr. Radiation, after putting it back to Alex.
2: All right, well, nice to meet you, and thanks again, Colonel Crustard. Thank you. So, yeah, that was Colonel Crustard. (laughs) He seems like a knowledgeable chap, if not, you know, the most friendly. Yeah, he, um, I
0: wouldn't go drinking with him. That's one thing. (laughs) That's
2: fair. He'd probably probably sit down and monologue for, like, hours.
0: He'll tell you all about the history of it. and He makes it sound like a war sometimes.
3: (laughs) Well, everything is war.
0: (laughs) I hear it's hell. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. War, war has changed.
0: All right, all right. So now we know how the earthquake happened. So now we need to understand how a nuclear power plant works. Now we can't go into all the details of how every tiny little part happens because let's face it, we're not nuclear scientists and we'll want to shoot ourselves. <laughs>
2: I, I want to shoot myself on a daily basis because I'm not a nuclear scientist.
0: It's my greatest failure. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Every time I look at our nuclear p- plants in the distance and I say, damn, I'm not working there. Every time I watch The Simpsons, I just get angry because I'm like, how does Homer Simpson have a job here and I don't? <laughs> so triggering. So how does Homer Simpson have a job there? But I digress. I, I think that a lot about with like TV
2: shows and stuff. I'm like, man, like really like. You just have to get your foot in the door. You really just have to get hired at a place, and then like you can do a terrible job for literally years before anything bad happens to you. Like a lot of, a lot of employers can confirm. <laughs> yeah.
0: We all know that one person that we've worked with. Where we're like, how how do you have a job? How are you how are still you? here? I've never seen you work. All right. So, want, ready to learn how a nuclear power plant works? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely.
2: Are we are we getting Mr. Radiation back?
0: i am mr radiation and i am back to tell you all about nuclear power plants are you ready Lacey? (laughs) i'm ready mr radiation it's good to hear you again oh it's good to be back and are you ready listeners
2: i'm gonna assume that's a yes
0: (laughs) Alright, so inside a nuclear power plant, it's actually a lot simpler than you would actually expect. So last time, we talked about how the inside of an atomic core works. Do you remember that? I do, yeah, Mr. Radiation. You explained it very well thank you very much. Well, what happens inside most nuclear power plants and this is what we call a soft water nuclear power plant. The short version is they take uranium and then they have it react with Zirconium alloy which uses which is used to keep the neutron flux stable. So as neutrons are bouncing around and going crazy to avoid criticality, the zirconium partially moderates it. Okay, so it's kind of keeps it contained exactly so while they're inside the zirconium alloy neutrons are going around and doing their thing but what they also do is they gradually turn that uranium into plutonium and that plutonium is a very dangerous nuclear waste so every few months about 25 percent of that fuel needs to be replaced consistently so when you hear about nuclear and radioactive waste being distributed That's usually what it is, if not the contaminated water, but we'll get into that in a second. Okay, so as it keeps it
2: contained, there's a certain amount of conversion that happens from uranium to plutonium, and that that becomes waste? The plutonium's waste? That is correct. Okay.
0: So as everything is happening inside these rods, as uranium is turning to plutonium, they get real, real hot. Now, to keep them cool, you have to pump in water, and that water will go into the tank, where it burns off and turns into steam. That steam then will turn the turbines, and those turbines generate electricity. Alright. So essentially, this is one giant steam engine that is powered entirely by nuclear rods. Gotcha. As the steam turns the turbines, they cool down and turn back into water. And as that water cools down, it is then pumped back into the system and the whole cycle goes on again. So all that water is contained within house. Gotcha. And that, in short, is how a nuclear core uh, works when you're talking about a power plant. Well, thank you, Mr. E.D. Shane, I appreciate that. You're very welcome. Now, it is my weekend, and tomorrow is Sunday, and it's God's day, so I'll have to go.
2: Well, I I wish you a happy weekend and pleasant worshipping, if that's what you're gonna do.
0: What do you think Mr. Radiation worships? Like, let's not get into it. We'll start too many fights.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fair.
0: So yeah, that's how a, a nuclear power plant works. I have a vague
2: memory of touring a nuclear power plant in chemistry class in high school, but I remember um, the jokes. <laughs> I remember little pellets that they showed us, or like plastic pellets that were like lookalikes to like what they used. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember a lot of the science, so I'm glad Mr. <laughs> radiation came back.
0: Yeah, so I mean, it's it's a really, it's a very elegant system when, you know, you're not worried about radiation contamination. You you know, the, radiate, uh, the rods heat up, you put water in to keep them cool so they don't go insane. Once it turns to steam, turns turbines, reuse that water, you're good to go. When it's when it's working right, everything's totally fine, totally safe. But that's when it's going right. So let's talk about what went wrong. Okay, so March 11th, 2011 at 2.46pm Japanese time is when the earthquake occurred off the coast of Japan. At 2.47, just a minute later, now the plan is actually properly named Fukushima Daiichi. Okay. This power plant was cut off from the national grid as a result of the earthquake. When this happened, when there were diesel engines that were hooked up to reactors. So reactors 1 through 3 were still active at this time. 4 through 6, the final reactors, were currently undergoing maintenance, so they were not active. But once this jostling happened from the earthquake, diesel backup generators kicked in as the reactor's main processes shut down. Okay, so they had, like, a system in
2: place to, like, they had backup generators for if something like this happened where they were off the
0: grid. Exactly. So, shaking happens, grid gets cut <clears> off. <throat> the second the shaking happens, before they even know they're cut off from the grid, the diesel generators are like, We're here! We're gonna start working. Okay. So, uh, now, the generators, all they do is they pump water through the reactors to keep them cool. So again, no water, they'll overheat. Okay, we don't want that here. So, what happens is as they're pumping water in, the water generates steam. Mm-hmm. And as that pressure builds up, a valve will release to let off all that steam. And then it will close back up again, water will get pumped back through. And so, it will kind of routinely open up and just like let off steam while it's pumping water in. Now again these rods aren't being maintained anymore so they're still going to be hot even though okay. they've been extracted they're not going to be at the point where they're going to continue doing nuclear fission but they're still very very hot. Okay. So at 3:27 p.m. the first tsunami wave hits and the wall, the seawall that's surrounding the area, it holds. So, yay! Whoa, hey, that's awesome. I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> So at 3.30 p.m., the water and the hot rods are continuing to generate steam. The steam is releasing periodically to relieve the pressure. And the process is still uninterrupted, but the steam is getting hotter. And no one seems to know this at this time. At 3.38, a single generator shuts down. Now, remember, they have generators for all of them, but one of the generators shuts down, but the others are continuing to function. Okay. But here's the thing. All but one of the remaining generators that are functioning are underground, and another tsunami wave is approaching. Oh, no. So, remember what the news report said? They were anticipating a 6-meter tsunami wave? Yeah, yeah. Well, at 3.46 p.m., a 14-meter tsunami wave hits the 5.7-meter-high seawall surrounding the facility. Oh, God. It immediately floods absolutely everything. It hops the wall, it covers the entire grounds, and the waterlogged subterranean generators shut down. Oh my God. So with the generators down, they can no longer pump water and there is no electricity and the heat is rising. And as I put in my notes, the fuckery begins.
2: Uh, I'm, I'm Googling 14 meters because I want to understand that in feet because stupid American. 45 feet 11 inch so 46 feet yeah and the seawall was only like five meters yeah Ugh. yeah that's like four and a
0: half basketball hoops tall oh my god okay yikes so at four o'clock japan is preparing for their impending doom all vulnerable nuclear power plants are surveyed including fukushima but at this time no radiation levels are detected but all plants have been shut down as a safety precaution. Sure. So at 6 o'clock, water plus hot rods equals evaporation. This means that as the water is burning off, they don't have as much water to refill it because the rest of the plants down, they don't have turbines going, they don't have it turning back into regular water. They're running out of that cooling system. Exactly. But as the water is burning off, that means the water levels inside are dropping. And so at this point at uh, 6 o'clock p.m. Japanese time, the tops of the rods in reactor number one are starting to poke out. That's, okay, yeah, he mentioned that. All right. No water (laughs) equals no heat containment equals, oh, shit. You're gonna have a bad time. You're gonna have a bad time. God. So at 6.18 p.m., emergency backup power on reactor one is restored. Yay! Yay! Water moves back into the containment vessel, but the workers do not realize how much steam has built up inside Reactor 1, so they're like, Yay, water's going back in. But they don't realize that the rods are poking out and how much steam's in there. Okay. At 7.02 p.m., Japanese Prime Minister... So I'm actually, before I say this, uh, one of the things that I've learned about Japanese culture is that they say the family name before the first name. Okay. So I know a lot of people get confused because it's a very uh, it's very common in Asian cultures. So people will be like Kim Jong-un and then Kim Jong-il. Why is everyone being named Kim? Kim's the last name. Okay, Jong-un that makes sense. and Jong-il are their proper names. Okay. So all these articles had the names of these individuals in Japan listed the way America does it with their personal name followed by their family name. I've flipped that out of right. respect. Yeah, that makes sense. That's like, yeah, that's, that's a weird choice for them to make. Yeah, I think it's just so, um, because most of the English speaking world and most Westernized world, we do it the other way around. And so just so everybody else can understand, <laughs> I digress. Okay. So, uh, at 7.02, Japanese Prime Minister Naoto Kan declares a Japanese nuclear emergency. Though there's been no explosion or known meltdowns at this time, he insists this is entirely a precautionary measure as the situation evolves. So they know, you know, we have some power plants that are, you know, in the ship. We know we have one underwater. Nothing's happened yet, but just to be safe. So at 7.30 p.m., water burns off from reactor one and has left the rods at least partially exposed. Due to the extreme heat and without water to regulate it, the rods begin to melt down into the base of the reactor.
2: Oh, that's it's like a literal meltdown. That's like what, why that's called that.
0: Yeah, and uh, I don't know exactly who coined this phrase, but I really liked it, so I had to put it in my notes. It was described as a quote, molten slag heap of radioactive metal. Ooh,
2: If that isn't like the gnarliest, most dangerous sounding thing.
0: That's gonna be the name of my metal album. <laughs>
2: I love it.
0: So then at 9 o'clock p.m., everyone's starting to wonder who's working inside. Is this Chernobyl 2.0? Yeah. Workers find religion. Mandatory evacuation is called for a two-mile radius surrounding Fukushima. People up to 6.2 miles away are told they can stay home, but they should prepare to leave. Wow. Reactor 1 is now twice the normal pressure level. Recognizing Uh, the danger, older workers voluntarily take the place of younger employees. In their twilight years, they are willing to take on the horrific effects of radiation rather than subject young man who's just beginning his life.
2: Wow, that's like... Pretty incredible.
0: Yeah, and we talked about this in the previous episode of the effects of radiation poisoning, and the three people who died because of the uh, demon core, not including Sloten, they died about 20 years plus after being exposed, and some of them had horrific deaths. Uh, one had a aplastic anemia, one had a heart attack. So these people are understanding that it's like, we may not be sick and die right now, but in 20 years when it hits me, I could be, you know, like 70 years old.
2: Yeah. And like, there's something really, I don't know, uh, meaningful to me about like the informed consent of that, because like, we didn't really know what radiation did back like way before, you know, like, but we did in 2011. Yeah. Like, pe- yeah.
0: They they signed up knowing what was going to happen to them. Ugh. Exactly. Wow. So then, Saturday, March 12th, that brings us up to the next day. Okay. At 2.44 a.m., Reactor 3's backup generator has run out of power, and water can no longer be pumped in. So now it's Reactor... 12 1... hours later. Yeah, so now Reactor okay. 1 and Reactor 3 are starting to feel it. At 4.15 a.m., the fuel rods in Reactor 3 are beginning to be exposed. And there's still people working there. Yeah, yeah. So at 5 30 AM, Reactor 3 is critically overpressured and decaying. A board of nuclear experts agree to try a risky maneuver. So elsewhere in Japan, they're they've put together a board of experts and they're like, well, what can we do to try to save this? What's going on at Fukushima? And so they decide they're gonna try this risky maneuver. If it works, it could save the day. If it doesn't work, it could blow it up. But if they don't try it, it could blow up anyway.
2: So it's kind of like, we have to try this because like, what choice do we really have?
0: Yeah, and so the big question that they have right now is the heat caused by the buildup may have caused an excess of hydrogen. And as we know, thanks to the Hindenburg, Hydrogen is highly flammable. So there's a chance that if they vent it, even though they don't have water in there, that all that hydrogen once it gets into the oxygen-rich atmosphere. Like they night. Night. Uh. So they were they were they've decided they
2: have to do this high-risk maneuver because otherwise everything's certainly going to go bad.
0: Yeah, it's gonna go bad if they don't try it. It's almost like a damned if we do, damned if we don't, but you're slightly less damned if you do. So and you, there's no excuse for not trying in this instance. Exactly. So they try the maneuver, and luckily, it works. Bad news is that the steam that does get released is irradiated because, again, the fuel rods are exposed. But the good news is that it's contained it from being a full-on explosion, which could be much more contamination. So at 5.50 a.m. So that was just 5.30 a.m. We're just like in the wee hours of Saturday. Okay. So then at 5.30, partial emergency power is restored and fresh water is being pumped into Reactor 1 to cool down the exposed rods. Yay! Good. But I also put in my notes, BTW, what the fuck is going on with Reactor 3? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Meanwhile, back at Reactor 3. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, at the Legion of Doom. Oh, that's (laughs) appropriate there. Oh, shit. So then at 6.50 a.m., workers don't realize that Reactor 1 has partially melted down. So even though they've been able to restore some water to it, they don't realize that the rods were exposed enough to actually start decaying and melting into the bottom. Oh, I see. Here's the thing, and I want to throw some math at you. The temperature inside is 2,190 degrees Fahrenheit. Which is twelve hundred degrees Celsius. Okay. I guess I'm not gonna throw math at you, I'm gonna throw chemistry at you. Okay. So- well, on like three thousand is like uh cremation temperature Fahrenheit. Is it? I think. I think so. Anyway. But this is why those numbers are important. So remember I told you about zirconium, which is used to kind of mediate the neutron flux? Yeah. Zirconium, which is used to refine the core um, and allows fission to take place, is usually inert at temperatures that are 572 degrees Fahrenheit or 300 degrees Celsius, but at these levels, it is no longer inert. So it's not doing the protective job it's supposed to. Here's the problem. It's starting to slight that hydrogen off of the oxygen in the water. Oh, no! Which means that it's building up pure hydrogen. Which, as we know, is highly flammable. Yeah. And that's happening at 6.50 a.m. So at 6.58, Reactor 2 is now facing a potential meltdown.
3: Like uh, reactor... No, not
0: Reactor 2. I was counting on you. <laughs> like Reactor 1, uh, partially radioactive steam is released. So it's, again, it's like we, we know this risky maneuver is working. Yeah, the steam is a little bit radioactive, but it's keeping it from blowing up. At 3.30 p.m., everyone within six miles is forced to evacuate. At 3.36, this is it. Six, six, react- minutes,
2: later, six minutes later? God. Six
0: minutes later. Not enough Reactor one. To- <laughs> As I put in my notes, reactor one blows it shit. Oh, no. Pressure, coupled with the buildup of hydrogen, lead to an explosion. The vessel is broken, but somehow the core remains intact. What? Four workers are injured from falling cement. So they have a huge hydrogen explosion. All this shit's released into the atmosphere. Things come crumbling down, but here's the difference between what happened here and what happened at Chernobyl. The core was split open at Chernobyl.
2: Ah, uh, so that, that was exposed, like it was exposing all that radiation from the core whereas at least in this instance the core remained intact and wasn't split
0: yeah it was the vessel itself blew up which is still bad but it's not a we split open the middle that was at chernobyl Okay. So at 7 o'clock p.m., workers begin pumping seawater directly into reactor one to keep it cool. So we're like, it's already blown, but we still have the core in there. It's like, so, but we still have the rods in there. We still need to keep that cool because otherwise it's just going to keep melting down. Right. But then at 7.25, Tokyo Electric Power Company, also known as TEPCO, orders the plant to stop pumping seawater fearing radioactive contamination. So they're like, you pump in seawater, it's eventually gonna to go somewhere, we don't want that to get into the ocean. But fearing a meltdown more than contamination, the plant manager, and I could not verify his name, ordered the team to continue pumping in seawater. Because he's like, look, we can either contaminate some water, or we can risk Chernobyl. Right? Pick one. God, there's so much like
2: weighing of different risks that like all these judgment calls that have to be continually made in this
0: situation. Yeah, um, we're gonna have to take a drink real quick because Alex is gonna mention Mass Effect. Oh, here we are. Cheers, So there's a phrase that I love in uh, Mass Effect Three, and you're talking to one of the characters, and. The idea is that the entire galaxy is at war at this point with this overwhelming force that's trying to wipe out all life. Okay. And so you're talking to one of your friends in it, and he's saying that uh, it sucks that like you have to like decide, it's like, do I kill like 3 million people over here and sacrifice them to save 7 million people over here? And he refers to it as the cold calculus of war. Ooh. And that is the phrase, that, that's all I can think of when I hear about these decisions they're having to make. God, yeah. It's a chilling phrase. So at 9.40 p.m., the evacuation area is expanded again to 12.4 miles. I mean, like, at this point, like, I'd just
2: probably be leaving if I was, like, in that area and had the option to. I'd be like, okay, well, they're just going to keep expanding
0: this. Yeah. I mean, there are stories of people who, like, they... Look at their house after the earthquake and everything, like, okay, you know, we lost a few tiles, we're too far inland for the water to hit us. Okay, we'll be fine. And then having to evacuate anyway because of a power of... plant. Yeah. Fuck. Okay. So now we're at Sunday. So Sunday, March 13th, at 2 42 AM, systems for reactor three entirely fail Ugh. so water levels fall heat rises rods are emerging we know what's happening now so at five ten a.m on a scale of one to seven fukushima's events are declared a level four radioactive event which is referred to as an event with local consequences And this is the International uh, Nuclear Incident Rating Scale. Okay. So, by comparison, Chernobyl was a 7. That makes sense. So, at this point in time, it's only a 4. Then at (laughs) 7 a.m., the rods in Reactor 3 are fully exposed. Not partially exposed. Fully. fully Exposed. No. At 9 a.m., rods begin melting down, creating an excess of hydrogen. (sighs) this again at one o'clock workers in the plant begin to suspect a partial meltdown is happening in reactor three (laughs) one and three are again vented and reactors are staunched with a mixture of boric acid and water so boron and they actually talk about this in chernobyl is actually something that absorbs neurons so remember neurons are those radioactive or yeah neutrons sorry uh absorbs neutrons So we talked about last episode how neutrons are like those little bullets that are being shot out.
2: Yeah, gotcha boron absorbs the bullets.
0: Yeah, so boron absorbs it. A lot of reactors have boron mixtures in their cores when they are inert to keep them from reacting. In fact, if you watch Chernobyl, they cover uh, everything at Chernobyl with boron just to be safe. Okay. So they use the boron to absorb the neutrons, and then the water's there to aid in cooling. So it makes sense. So though at this point in time, reactor two has low water and high pressure compared to the other two, it is currently considered to be stable okay so it's like things aren't great with reactor two but it's not reactor one or three <laughs> okay it's like in
2: school where you're like uh you know i definitely haven't studied for this test but i feel okay about it whereas the other ones like i haven't been to class all semester <laughs> exactly no way. <laughs> yeah
0: so remember all this stuff started on friday we're now at monday march 14th okay so at 1101 a.m hydrogen re- uh, in reactor 3 explodes under pressure uh. and here i put my notes here we go again god okay all right so now one's exploded and now three's exploded. Six workers are injured when parts of the building collapses. So again, falling cement. Luckily, there are no significant signs of radiation yet. Mm. At 1.15, Reactor 2's cooling system fails. Water burns off, heat rises, the cycle continues. Man. At 3 o'clock PM, a chunk of molten fuel in Reactor 3 drops to the base of the pressure vessel. That and doesn't sound good. It's not good. At 6 o'clock p.m., water levels in Reactor 2 are low enough to begin to expose the rods. And at 8 o'clock p.m., Reactor 2's meltdown is beginning and the excess of hydrogen is building. Oh my god. And that brings us to Tuesday, the Ides of March. Beware. Oh yes, beware. It's not a good day overall. God. So at 11 a.m., Reactor 3 blows again due to the hydrogen buildup. This damages the remaining systems for Reactor 2. Oh, no! Reactor 2 is hanging on by a thread! At 8 o'clock p.m. on the Ides of March, Reactor 2 is in the worst shape of all three. It has entered a full meltdown. Nearly all fuel has melted into the bottom of the pressure vessel. The early explosions have affected containment, and radiation is seeping into the air, the ground, and the water. For our listeners, you can't tell, but I'm squinching my face up real good when I say no. We're at the point now where there is no longer a chance to avoid disaster, and there is only containment and reaction. God. uh, Yeah. All right. Let's let's get ready for some nuclear reaction. So uh, that is how everything progressed at... Fukushima and as you can tell it it sounds like it was a shit show inside. Um, yeah I mean system after system failing, having to take risk uh, risky maneuvers to try to save what you can it was insane. So now we're going to talk about the aftermath. okay all right until December of 2011 and remember this was the beginning of March when all this happened until December 2011, a contingency of workers remained on site in the Fukushima plant. Named the Fukushima 50, these individuals worked long, rotating hours while sleeping on the floor of shielded buildings. Water was sparse and diet was poor. Wow. So one of these workers uh, named Yoshizawa Atsfumi was one of the 50, and he described having only 500 milliliters of water to drink to last two days. Uh, that's That's not a lot.
2: 500 milliliters. I feel like... How much is that? A liter. Like, what's a liter? Is that half
0: a liter for two days? That's not even half a liter. What is that? All right, so a milliliter is one thousandth of a liter. So it's two cups of water. Two cups of water to last you two days. Yeah, you have a cup of water a day. Uh,
2: But... But are we calling these people heroes and not giving them hazard pay like we're
0: doing now? We'll we'll get to that. (sighs) Okay. All right. Yikes. That is... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. After two weeks, he was finally able to have his first cup of coffee, which he described as it tasted fantastic. Yeah. They had... Like, they were bringing in, like, as much food and rations as they could. But again, this is a very hazardous area to go into. Supplies were sparse. And on top of, like, having the different supplies, like, you were in rotating shit in a radioactive environment. So the 54 year old engineer was actually leaving work at the end of his shift when the earthquake rocked the region. Even before the tsunami came crashing into the plant, he decided to stay. So like he'd already like changed out, was ready to go home. And as soon as it happened, he was like, nope, I'm in it for the long haul. What a sense of like responsibility
2: to your fellow human. Cause that would have been like, oh,
0: thank God I got off work. (laughs) Well, I already put on my punch card. The good timing, everything's coming up lazy. <laughs> so many of the workers actually lost weight and their health declined in the ever alert atmosphere of post nuclear, uh, nuclear disaster cleanup. Sure, uh, yeah, like you can't. I imagine you're
2: also not getting like enough sleep, you're not getting enough food or water, you're stressed. Yeah.
0: And okay. Yoshizawa even talks about how, like, his blood pressure raised, he lost weight. It was just a terrible environment. So by March 31st of 2011, two of the Fukushima 50 were hospitalized with radiation burns, so they were quickly released. Wow. A mother of a 32-year-old member of the 50 reported to Fox News, my son and his colleagues have discussed it at length that they have committed themselves to die if necessary to save the nation. He told me they have accepted they will probably die from radiation sickness in the short term or cancer in the long term. Something that you should also know is that some of the 50 worked in 15-minute intervals to clean up plutonium-irradiated chambers while dressed in protective gear. So part of the reason they're staying on is disasters already happened. It's all cleanup now. But the longer you have that plutonium in there, the really, really bad stuff, the longer that contamination is going to remain in the environment, you still need to try to clean that out. And so they had only 15 minutes dressed head to toe that they could be in there to clean out. So it's like 15 minutes, get out or you're gonna die.
2: Wow. It's, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around like the decision-making process around this, because on the one hand, like preserve your own life, survival, all of that. On the other hand, living in a culture that's less about individualism and preserving just yourself and more about thinking of the whole and the community. I can I can see that perspective. There's also like a chance for every person that you could die of cancer regardless of like heroic deeds or deeds that you didn't do. So like if if you're going to go out in a bad way, like it would be nice to have some meaning attached to it and be able to be like, well, at least I might have saved the lives of, like, people around me.
0: Yeah, and you were asking, like, about uh, hazard pay and things like that. The- they were given extra bonuses for, you know, staying behind and doing this because they are doing what they can to, you know, save Japan, to potentially
3: Could.
2: save... Good. I mean, that's what we should be doing for essential workers now. They should all be getting hazard pay. That's my opinion.
3: Yeah.
0: So you know how I was saying that they were wearing protective gear in these 15-minute intervals? Yes. Kaeda Banri who was then the interior minister and deputy head of the Japanese nuclear task force, reported that not all workers had been provided with lead-lined sheeting to protect them while sleeping on the potentially irradiated floors. Mm. Many of the workers reported to loved ones that they'd taken to sleeping on desks and tables to avoid contamination. God. Yeah. In the wake of the disaster, reports emerged of prior safety violations and poor decision-making prior to the disaster. Independent reports from 2000 and 2008 warned of the dangers of the plant could face in the event of a tsunami. In 2008, the report cited a tsunami from 1897, which towered 10.2 meters, which is greater than the 5.7 meter seawall. There was again discussed in the report to Tempco on March 7th, 2011, only four days prior to the event. Four days prior to the event, they were like, you know, like, in 1897, there was this tsunami that was 10.2 meters tall. Your wall's only 5.7. This could be an issue.
2: Right. God, like, how prescient. it. At that time. Like to be like not that anything anyone did anything about it, not that you could probably build higher
0: walls in four days anyway, but Yeah. Well the board did agree that they did need to take action, but they decided to establish a solution later on so like okay well yeah we need to take action but we're gonna table this before and we're trying to find out like what our timeline is going to be who's going to do it how it's going to be done so are like okay yeah that sounds good but they hadn't set a date this is like four days before the disaster right they're like oh yeah we should do something
2: about this let's really plan it out and do it right and it's like ah oh, shit you just aren't gonna have that time but you didn't know that at the time
0: Yeah. Well, also furthermore, the actions of of individuals inside Fukushima Daiichi from the earthquake through the meltdown were highly criticized. Shoddy maintenance and anonymous reports of poor training were spread all over. In fact, General Electric, who uh, constructed the reactors, uh, constructed them 40 years prior. And safety tests for the backup generators had not been conducted in the 40 years since the plant opened.
2: That's crazy. There should be routine safety testing of all that kind of shit.
0: Exactly. So, like 40 years ago, they're like, okay, these work backup works. It's cool.
2: (laughs) Looks good. Probably nothing will change in 40 years. Things don't ever break or degrade over time. That's not a thing that happens.
0: Some workers even reported under the cloud of anonymity, anonymity God, why is it such a hard word? That they were instructed to downplay the crisis. Your face says it all. <laughs> yeah, I, I bugged my eyes out and I bared all my
2: teeth. <laughs> I don't know why that was my reaction, but yeah, it's pretty horrifying. That It's, it's almost like finding out there's going to be a massive viral outbreak in, all over the world, definitely <laughs> in your country, and instead of telling the community, just selling off all your stock. Like, it's unconscionable is what it is.
0: Oh, what? What? Who would do that? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Not our dear leader. So these (sighs) reports have actually led to the near-universal silence of the Fukushima 50. The group is still overshadowed by the stigma of Fukushima's failings. Rather being lauded as heroes, the 50 are seen as having failed to protect the communities surrounding the plant, the community they were responsible for. So even though they stayed behind and sacrificed their lives, they're still overshadowed by the facts like, well, you worked at Fukushima, and because they ignored all these reports, because of the ways that they reacted, because of all these things that have come out after the fact, you failed to protect us in the immediate danger. You failed to prevent this from happening. Like, I, okay, so I can kind of see that perspective, but
2: it's like a little bit like being mad at the soldiers who came back from Vietnam. Like, they're, the people who are there, like, working, aren't all the people who are tasked with these decision making capacities either.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, following, they even talk about this in several documentaries. Uh, so I recommended several documentaries, uh, on our website, the, uh, one about Hiroshima and the one that is white light black rain. Mm -hmm. They talk about the stigma that actually followed survivors of the atomic bombings because People didn't understand uh, radiation exposure, and they kind of like held this weird place in Japanese society where people don't interact with them. It's hard for them to get jobs. It's wow. It's surprising. It's a completely different. Well, a completely different culture than what we're real than what we're used to. In October of 2012, Japanese Prime Minister Noda. Yoshihiko visited the Fukushima plant. He publicly thanked the Fukushima 50 for, quote, saving Japan. In January of 2013, the new Japanese Prime Minister, Abe Shinzo, publicly repeated the same sentiment.
2: Wow. So- well, good. I'm glad the leadership stepped up and was like, these people, like, sure, not like decision making wasn't perfect. There were safety regulations that weren't followed. But the people who are there, like, trying to help were still there trying to help. They still chose to stay behind and try to, like, sacrifice themselves in order order to help the rest of the country like I'm glad that I don't know the honor in that is being recognized
0: yeah for the first 18 months they were pretty much given no acknowledgement they were kind of like lumped in with everybody else but after 18 months when two prime ministers back to back thanks them the thought process about them has actually changed in fact actually on march 6th of this year a japanese movie was released called the fukushima 50 oh wow so i want to see if i can get maybe a, a subtitled or english dubbed version of it because i'd be very curious to see how a japanese culture put it in their cinema yeah let me know if you find that yeah i will Today, approximately 500,000 homes in the Fukushima area remain abandoned. Soil in the area has been systematically frozen to contain contaminated groundwater, and irradiated water from reactors are stored in containment cells large enough to hold up to 160 Olympic-sized swimming pools. The disaster has been reclassified on the International Nuclear Incident Scale to a level 7, now seen as, quote, a major incident. So it's now on the same level as as a Chernobyl because it has gotten into the water. We've seen the maps of the spread of radioactive fallout and the ocean currents. So we didn't know how bad it was at, at first,
2: but we've watched the radiation spread over time. Yes.
0: Okay. Fukushima is the worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl in 1986. To this day, residents may not return to their homes within the evacuation zone. It is Whoa. illegal to sell, purchase, or consume produce and seafood from the area.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, I learned a little bit about this because, like I do before every cocktail I construct, I will do like a Google of like what like Fukushima and read like the first few sentences that pop up like whatever the little wikipedia is like whatever mm-hmm. and this one they i thought about doing a cocktail that incorporated apples because fukushima apples are just now very recently becoming a thing that people are trying to eat and prove are okay and there's like this movement in the area of, of farmers to try to um get back into like reinstating selling produce and things oh cool that's actually cool to hear yeah i uh, had no idea i was like oh that's the only thing i know about this and i'm not gonna dig deeper because i want to be
0: surprised yeah yeah um, unfortunately domestic and wild animals in the exclusion zone have been abandoned. Aww. So here's the part, and this is unfortunately where I'm ending this story. I, again, there's so many other little stories that I could like put in here, but for the sure. sake of time. But this last part of it really upset me. So just let me get through this whole paragraph, and I think you're going to feel the same. Though delayed in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, Tokyo's Olympic Games will begin with a torch relay at Fukushima. The Fukushima Stadium is going to be used for baseball and softball games in the Olympics. Following the Olympic Games, Japan intends to pump contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean. With recent events delayed by global actions, it is unknown how this timeline and events may or may not be affected. They're just going to pump
2: a bunch of that water into the ocean? Yeah! Uh, n- no! Ha- how about
0: how about they, they just don't do that? <laughs> I have mean, because there is so much information out there, I have gone through so many articles, so many reports. And when I found this, I was like, how is this not like a headline everywhere? Yeah, that seems like uh, a bunch of
2: radiation spread on accident. And now we're just going to like deliberately poison
0: our water? Yeah. What yeah. the actual fuck? Exactly. I mean, so Fukushima was bad. It wasn't Chernobyl bad because Chernobyl is like a whole other scale. Because again, that split the core open, went to the atmosphere, contaminated everything. The amount of contamination coming out of Fukushima is nowhere near worst case scenario or even best case scenario for Chernobyl. That being said, the way I'm seeing this is, uh, so in, I think it was 2012 or so, or 2013 was when it was announced that Tokyo was gonna host the 2020 Olympics. Ever since the tsunami, they've kind of been under a microscope. So uh, you have the tsunami in 2011, uh, they win the Women's World Cup that same year, which is kind of perfect because I mean, of all countries to win that, I'm so glad it was Japan. Yeah. But then you are doing all this buildup for the Olympic Games and this is like your big recovery. everyone's still talking about the cleanup from Fukushima as soon as the Olympic Games are over because I'm pretty sure internationally that's kind of like seen as like the capstone, just like the okay, we were here 10 years ago. this is where we are now. everything's good now. I think they're like as soon as like everyone's like, okay, everything in Japan's fine now. they're just gonna be like Pish. No one's going to see this. Yeah, that's deeply disturbing. Yeah, I'm sorry uh, to leave it on such a downer, but when I when I learned that, I was like, how the fuck is no one talking about this?
2: Right. Yeah, I, I totally
0: agree. That's insane that that's the plan. Yeah, and the fact that they're like, no one can live within the evacuation zone, which is a 12 mile radius, yet the stadium at Fukushima is going to be used to host Olympic Games. And so that there also has- seems fucked. There has been a conflicting reports about radioactivity in the area, so obviously in Japan they're saying oh, it's cool. We'll have our games there. But in other areas, they're like, but why can't your people live there?
2: Right. Yeah, that's really the thing. It's like, oh, I don't want my people living there, but if a bunch of international athletes want to come and put themselves at risk for a period of time, I mean, that's up to them, I guess. Like, kind of fuck you about that,
0: Japan. Yeah, I mean, like, technically, technically, if you and I wanted to, we could go on vacation to uh, Pripyat, which is the city that's right next to Chernobyl, and we can walk around for maybe a few hours.
2: Yeah, I know you can get like a pass. Yeah, and get out and but be okay. Not, I, but not live there
3: I,
0: for like I a week. Well, I don't think that they would have the Olympic athletes actually living at the stadium. It would just be for the purposes of just those games. So, like they would like probably like bus out or something.
2: But I, I'm thinking like if they usually have to build like an Olympic village and if there's like a bunch of abandoned buildings in that area, it makes sense that like they would have them stay in that area.
0: I think the Olympic village is being built like more like the Tokyo area okay. but they just want to utilize the Fukushima stadium for just uh, baseball and softball. That so, seems wrong. I think it's just like supposed to be like this statement of Look, it's safe enough for Olympic athletes to be there, but I think they're also kind of like playing into the the length of a baseball game or softball game is not long enough to actually get you a radiation exposure level that could kill you or cause long-term damage. Hopefully, yeah. But like then there's workers that have to be there, like prepping exactly. and like cleaning up, and like it's not
2: just about the people who show up and do the event and leave. Like you're putting so many people at risk that way.
0: All to prove a point that oh, it's okay, it's okay. We and the fixed big question is is it <laughs> exactly it's like why take the fucking risk
2: and the answer is always money wow
0: yeah i think that's like this is such
2: a timely story mm-hmm. like I, I know we don't we're not having like a lot of nuclear events going on right now but we are having like mishandled international disasters
0: <laughs> There, are, And the thing is, it's always mishandled. It's always someone being like, I'm going to protect my job and my ass and downplay this here and downplay this there. And it ends up biting you in the ass. It happened during Chernobyl in 1986. It's happening currently with COVID. It happened during the Spanish flu. It even happened during the plague. So the more things just, change, the more they stay the same. Exactly. It's just, unfortunately, it's it's human nature. Yeah. Oh, my God. My episodes keep pissing us off. I need to stop doing it.
2: <laughs> I will say talking today has gotten me really excited to dig into my research because I can't, I, I'm sure I could, but I can't make myself start researching an episode while we still have another active episode that we haven't recorded. I wait until we're done with everyone because, like, I want my brain in the right space and, like, the cocktail to be straight and to not have... And so, like, talking today, like, I feel like this energy to, like, research my
0: Yay. true crime. Um, Honestly, I'm really excited for you to take the reign. Yeah, you I've did done, two in a row. I've done two episodes in a row where I've had to explain nuclear energy. <laughs> or and, at least
2: find qualified experts who could.
0: Well, that, that that's true. I mean, <laughs> thank you to Mr. Radiation and to Colonel Crustard
2: yes thank you special guests
0: but I'm just I'm ready to like not have to do like this amount of research I'm like I don't want to know that zirconium is inert I don't need to know (laughs) that uranium turns into plutonium I don't need to know any of this stuff.
2: Well, good. I'm, I'm itching to take the reins. So I think it's good timing. And it's going to be a true crime episode. So I'm really excited. I'm so pumped. I already have, like, I know there's a documentary I need to rewatch that I've already seen, but I need to re-familiarize myself with. And then I'm just going to, like, see what other media's out there. See what stuff I can research online. Yeah, I'm, I'm super pumped about this next one.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> Yay, I'm so excited. All right. All, right. All right. Thanks. Thank you. I love you. I love you too. All yeah. right, keep Marco Poloing. Yes, did it. Uh, yeah, you too. All right. All right. Bye. Oh, bye. also, goodbye to our listeners. Why the hell are you still listening to us? Oh man, we've been talking about nothing for a, quite a while. So uh,
2: y'all go do something more enriching, <laughs> but not uranium <laughs> or plutonium.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> All right. See you soon. Yeah. Stop Perfect. recording.
1: I think the only hope for our future safety must lie in a collaboration based on confidence and good faith with the other peoples of the world.
2: As always, thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard today, please leave us a positive review and a five-star rating, and tell your friends. All of that helps people know who we are so that we can bring you more of what you love.
0: If you'd like more information on a specific episode, visit our website, crackpotcocktailhour.com, and click on the episode's link. If you'd like to know when new episodes are coming out and see the cocktail
2: recipes in advance, subscribe to us in your podcast app and follow us on social media. We are
0: Crackpot Cocktail Hour on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest, and we're at Crackpot Hour on Twitter. If you've got feedback for an episode or would like to suggest an episode topic, feel free to email us. We're CrackpotCocktailHour at gmail.com. Until next time, Crackpots! Crack crack it like it's it's hot!